Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Andy will be answering questions submitted by you in no particular order. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. So today in this podcast, I want to do something a little different. I want to do a little sociology. I will preface this by saying nobody really asked, and I have no training in sociology, not even Sociology 101 as a young college student. So my observations come from reading and reflecting on my own experience. And in an absolute pinch, I could make something up. But I don't really think that will be necessary for the scope of uh, the observations I'm going to offer today. The first point I would argue is that sociology actually matters for economics and finance and financial markets. You know, I've argued previously that markets and economics are more biology than physics. But I also want to suggest that sociology plays a big part. And this is really derived from the fact that unlike in classical economic models where more or less everybody is a price taker, a huge amount of economic activity is negotiated. And all of those negotiations are infused and constrained and subject to factors like the power of the people negotiating, that their social status, their social capital, as well as a whole variety of other constraints. You know, one observation across the board, all sectors, profit, non-profit, booming industries, struggling industries, the multiple between what CEOs Senior executives are paid versus line workers has steadily expanded over the last 40 years. I would suggest that the fundamentals of uh, supply and demand, you know, particularly for executive leaders, one can argue about the supply and demand of less skilled labor, but the supply and demand for executive leaders hasn't changed a whole lot over the last 50 or so years. And yet, you know, the multiple of, you know, average CEO pay to everybody else has steadily expanded. And I believe that this is primarily a result of a more individualistic culture. If we look at what the compensation of star athletes, which has gone up tremendously over the last 40 years, certainly big inflection point, the elimination of the reserve clause in baseball, which came about through litigation brought by Kurt Flood in the 1970s. Certainly, even 10 years before that, but 20 or 30 years before that, the suit never, ever, ever would have been brought. And even if it had been, I suspect the decision might have gone the other way. Two books that I've read over the last couple of years that I think are interesting and have kind of direct implications for financial markets. Some first is called The Fourth Turning by two sociologists, Strauss and Howe. Their first names escape me, but Strauss is known for having coined the term millennials. And the other book is called The Upswing by Robert Putnam. Putnam 
is better known for a book written about 20 years ago, Bowling Alone, which I haven't read, but I've certainly read enough reviews and commentaries and so forth that I feel no compunction about quoting it and pretending that I've read it. Putnam is a uh, Harvard sociologist. So Strauss and Howe maintain that as opposed to a 50-year kind of cycle posited by the Russian economist Kondratiev, that really throughout recorded history, there's a four-phase cycle generationally that lasts between um, 80 and 90 years, the span of a long human life for four generations. The phases of the cycle are termed a high or boom, which most recently the post-World War II period from 1945, and they ended with the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. Kaiser booms come after crisis periods and are characterized by a lot of social confidence, strength, and faith in community versus the individual. What in the upswing, the book by Putnam, he refers to as the I- we cycle the relative strength emphasis force of individual kinds of concerns versus group community kinds of concerns so the first phase a boom or a high characterized by a high degree of community action strong social institutions a lot of confidence get in modern times post-World War II to sometime in the 60s. The next phase, Strauss and Howe term, an awakening, where given the strength of social institutions, given an accepted sort of prosperity, the focus, the culture, the zeitgeist turns toward individual fulfillment, individual happiness. In Putnam's term, the we starts to shift to I. And obviously, uh, I'm a baby boomer. My uh, childhood and early adolescence in the 60s and the 70s, I grew up in the awakening phase. And certain things, you know, in the 70s, you know, there were lots of books on self-realization, self-actualization, things of that nature that wouldn't have been of any interest, concern, even recognizable to the generation that preceded the baby boomers. After the next phase in the Strauss-Howe cycle, they call the unraveling, you know, in part because of the emphasis on the individual versus community. Institutions weaken, fall apart, come into conflict. Social structures clash. You get culture wars, a period of very, very weak community and institutions Clearly in Putnam's term, the ebbing, maybe approaching the anator in the I-we cycle. So in modern terms, the unraveling begins sometime in the 80s, and I would suggest ended in 2008, followed by in the Strauss and Howe interpretation by what they call a crisis phase. In the crisis phase, it's frequently delineated by wars, but a very high degree of social unrest, incohesion, challenges that require actually community and collective action, meeting up against you know what have been very much weakened social institution. Two things, you know, I think 
it's pretty clear and to me makes a lot of sense that we're well into the crisis phase, which again, I would date from the financial crisis in 2008, which means we're a little over 12 years into it. Conceivably, one might date it from 9-11, 2001, you know, in which case, you know, we'd be almost 20 years into it. Now, the central point of Putnam's book, The Upswing, Not Bowling Alone, is that we've been here before, sort of in the I-We cycle, and one can already start to see a switch from I to we, and less concern for individuals, more concern with collective well-being. And just you know, parenthetically, I talked about in a previous podcast an era from sometime in the 70s to 2008 as being the era of empowered individualistic capitalism, which I said ended in 2008. Obviously, when one is talking about broad-based cultural shifts and generational transitions, the lines are fuzzy, and what we're really talking about is movement in the middle of sort of very broad, bell-shaped curves. Certainly, one can say something about the baby boom generation or the millennial generation, but both of them are huge cohorts, and that's not to say that all baby boomers are the same or all millennials are the same in the way they think, act, and so forth. But just as, you know, there's night and day and dawn and dusk, the lines between the four uh, do blur and are not completely tightly drawn. Moving back to what the Strauss Howe conception of the four phases of a cycle and Putnam's I-We, I think it's easy to see movement currently, movement in the we direction, though clearly not fully taking hold or dominant or whatever, but I would say, you know, nascent indications of what will be clear 10 or 15 years hence when we're clearly out of the crisis phase. Examples I might give. Fairly recently, the Chamber of Commerce, mainstream sort of group, least as much a follower as a leader, changed their statement of corporate purpose and moved from shareholder value to something of a uh, stakeholder capitalism. Now, at at a certain level, one can say, so what? They made their statement, but lo and behold, the next day, the sun rose in the east and set in the west. Similarly, we have ESG in the news and perhaps requirements for corporations to do certain things. And to date, I think one, in fact, can say, so what? But I do think there will be a shift driven not so much from the top, but from the middle. Not so much from the investment side, but the consumption side. Not so much in terms of extremes and things that are currently reflected in what's called cancel culture, but a broader kind of consensus of what constitutes good corporate citizenship, and in fact, people speaking with their wallets and more or less requiring certain corporate norms. In a way, 
many, many, many of my parents' generation would not buy German or Japanese cars, even though they were better <laughs> and a better value. By you know, my generation, both the idea that one shouldn't get the best value for oneself and the responsibility for World War II and assorted actions in the late 30s and 40s had obviously shifted. And exactly what constitutes good corporate citizenship, good corporate behavior, at this point, I think, you know, hasn't been determined and in any event will shift over time. I think there's a pretty good chance that 10 years hence, more or less every business will be expected to seek to be carbon neutral. While not every business will be expected to achieve it and so forth, it may well be very difficult to be in business mocking that standard or deliberately ignoring it and not making effort in that direction. I think it's likely that it will be viewed that businesses have a serious responsibility towards their employees. You know, in the 50s and 60s, there was an expectation of lifetime employment, employment for good behavior. Many, many people spent their entire careers at all levels, you know, from labor to executive with the same business. And I think businesses felt more responsibility towards their employees. I think that's actually going to return. And uh, there's been much commentary about how, you know, the average tenure at a job is shifting and the shifting requirements and so on and so forth. I think 10 years from now will have gone back, not necessarily to the degree where it was in the 50s and 60s, but businesses will feel a responsibility to keep their workforce trained and skilled in the ways that the business requires and will feel obligation to their employees. You know, law may and probably will shift in that direction, but the bigger change will be cultural. As I bring this to an end, I need to present the caveat that even if one is right about sort of broad cultural trends, it's not necessarily very useful for what trades one might make tomorrow, complicated and exacerbated by the fact that in the uh, Strauss-Howe construction, which I agree, we are still in a crisis phase and crises are definitionally unpredictable. But, you know, that said... I do think as we shift from the goal of the most consumer goods and the most entertainment at the best price to a broader definition of social well-being, I do think this is consistent with lower corporate profit margins and higher costs, ultimately consumer price inflation. I think it's very likely Facebook and Google, which are sought and started as with a we ideology, Facebook, you know, connecting us, bringing us together, Google, all knowledge accessible to everybody, became Frankensteinian monsters of individual atomization. You know, everybody on Facebook getting their own news, finding their own 
group of cohorts. I very strongly suspect they're kind of the IBM and, and General Motors of their generation, both extremely dominant companies uh, in the 50s and 60s, paragons of the model who you know now still around, but not the paradigms of an era that they growing up, the overwhelming majority of commercial transactions that people participated in were with businesses that were locally owned and the customers probably knew the owners or in any event had connections at most one step removed. I don't think we'll go all the way back. You know, there are obvious advantages to scale and scope and so forth, but I do think we will be moving in that direction as technology may well lower the critical mass required to achieve scale. And again, driven by the consumer's desire, I think 10 years hence we're actually likely to see more local business. The last thing I would say is look at the political spectrum and the obvious and tremendous polarization of the current period. I think it actually represents both political parties in their own sort of movement from I to we. I think for all of the unraveling period in uh, the Strauss and Howe construction, both political parties were I-centric. For the Democrats, it was I liberating individuals from social constraints regarding some behavior and basically sex. Individual liberty as to personal conduct, mostly in the realm of sex. And for the Republicans, it was individualism in the economic sphere, laissez-faire, lower taxes, uh, elimination of government or lessening of government, you know, etc. Whether the crisis phase started in 2000 or 2008, we can sort of see Bush as transitional with the notion of compassionate conservatism, which, you know, obviously didn't go anywhere. I think, you know, now, starting, you know, clearly with Obama, who had an inspirational kind of we message that he couldn't pull off. And of course, Trump is also we, but both parties, to get from I to we, there is being facilitated with the creation of them or they, you know. So this is really clear and explicit in the Trumpian agenda and rhetoric, but I think also was there in the uh, identity politics of the Democrats. You know, from, uh, <laughs> from my personal perspective, this is a most unfortunate turn of events in that I sort of see myself as a them to both parties. You know, to the Democrats, I'm a uh, wealthy, powerful, white <laughs> white heterosexual male, privileged white heterosexual male and somewhat libertarian conservative to boot clearly a them and to the Trumpists and Jewish <laughs> urban globalist, etc. you know, also in kind of the uh, crosshairs of the them. Though I think both Strauss and Howe and Putnam 
are ultimately optimistic in the sense that they both seem to view history and sociology as seeing the them as a cyclic phase and that quoting you know martin luther king the arc of history is long but it bends towards justice similarly over time the we bends to be bigger and less constrained and defined by the identification demonization etc of a them so concluding there is some reason for optimism in terms of the life our kids and grandkids will live that the crisis will be followed by a high and a good decade thank you thank you for listening to ask andy ask andy will be taking a short break and will return in two weeks if you would like to submit a question please email askandypodcast at gmail.com Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.